0: Hello, Sotans, and welcome to another episode of your most favorite podcast, Sota. I'm I'm Jasa.
1: I'm Sarah.
0: Wow. And yeah. we are your co-hosts to take you uh, on this educational journey. We have uh, said before that responding to the times that we're in and also not wanting to ask uh, any questions busy and exhausted, uh, by POC about, uh, you know, what we should talk about or about their work. Uh, we are educating ourselves and, uh, you know, looping that back into the art world uh, so that we can both learn and still stay true to this podcast as an arts podcast and and hopefully share a bit of what we learned with with you all. And so um, obviously a lot of protesting, riots, civil demonstrations, and unrest has been going on all across the country. And... uh, As people may have uh, gained from me mentioning it before on the podcast that I am in Southern California right now uh, working on a biennial down here. So all of this kind of made me think about uh, an artist who has a presence uh, near where I live and his name is Noah Purifoy.
1: And we've talked about him before, right?
0: Precisely, yeah. I believe uh, back in October of 2018, we released the episode Noah Purifoy uh, and Dustin Stoik <laughs> where mm-hmm. frequent uh, soda guest Dustin Stoick, uh did an interview uh, unrelated to the Noah Purifoy thing, but that was my mm-hmm. uh, me talking about my experience of going to the Noah Purifoy Outdoor Art Museum in Joshua Tree for the first time. So uh, in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the history and about Noah himself. And that episode that we released a couple years ago is going to talk about more of the experience of going to that specific museum and the artworks. So to supplement this episode, you can go back and listen to that one. Mm -hmm.
1: And the focus, I think, was talking about how uh, outdoor museums experiences differ and are better, or, you know, more engaging than kind of a traditional museum experience. We we kind of focused on the works as well, and you know, Noah Purifoy obviously, but not as deeply as um, we were going to. We're going to now, um, Jason, Why, why did Noah Purifoy start? Making works in the style that is represented in his outdoor museum?
0: Right. Well, No Purefoy lived from 1917 until 2004. And he, although he was born in Alabama, he spent most of his life in uh, California, namely Los Angeles, and then Joshua Tree. He was an artist, but his earliest known sculpture was constructed out of debris from the Watts Riots that are also known as the Watts Rebellion, which took place in 1965.
1: I know absolutely nothing about the Watts Riots.
0: The Watts Riots get their name from the neighborhood of Watts, which is kind of in a little more south of Los Angeles. And it was a predominantly black neighborhood. And The story of the Watts Rebellion, or Watts Riots, is one that we are unfortunately very familiar with. It started on August 11th, 1965, of course, in Watts, and it started as a routine traffic stop. Uh, Two half-brothers, Marquette and Ronald Fry, were being pulled over by a white policeman, and... Uh, Marquette, the driver, failed a sobriety test and and panicked um, because he was getting arrested. Then a scuffle broke out, and the brother joined in to try to protect his brother. Um, Their house was not far away, and their mother-in-law, Rena, actually showed up and believed that the police were abusing Marquette, and so she got in between to try to protect her son-in-law um and just kind of all this you know scuffle was going on more and more people gathered at the site so more people were gathering um you know to try to defend this family from the police and of course the police were calling for more backup and so uh They were trying to, you know, intervene upon the crowd to get to the center and then of course the crowd was pushing back on their interference Um, and eventually all three of the family did get arrested and put into cars and, uh, you know, taken away to be arrested. But the crowd just got angrier and angrier as more and more officers arrived because, you know, of course they were using their batons and they were carrying shotguns in order to, you know, kind of assert their authority on this crowd. Um, And so that just, you know, obviously just added fuel to the fire and it kept building, Um, especially when there was a woman uh, who the crowd believed was pregnant, uh, was shoved or somehow assaulted by police, that outraged the crowd even more. That was at about 7 p.m. that night, and by about 7.45 p.m., the riot was in full force. People were were throwing rocks and pieces of cement that were being they were being thrown at the cars that had been sold in traffic because of the accident. Crowds were attacking motorists with their rocks and bricks and were pulling white drivers out of the cars and assaulting them. Um, The next day there was a community meeting uh, by, you know, local figures and leaders within the Watts uh, neighborhood. that also had police in attendance, and it was to try to quell the tension in in the neighborhood and try to, you know, kind of limit any uh, violence, but it didn't have much of an effect. And then overnight, uh, violence engulfed the streets as, you know, like these huge groups of people were clashing with police, buildings were set on fire, and there was looting. Um, and the crowds even you know, blocked the firefighters from being able to put out these buildings. Um, And so by the end of the third day, the rioting covered a 50 square mile section of Los Angeles and 14,000 National Guard troops were dispatched to the city.
1: Wow, this is sounding really familiar.
0: It said Watts resembled a, a war zone and the violence continued for three more days. Police tear gassed the sewers to prevent anybody from escaping via via the sewers. And uh, two fires broke out and one destroyed a mosque. This was taken from history.com. There were 34 deaths and over $14 million in property damage. And this was in 1965 money.
1: Ooh, So that's a lot more money now.
0: It is. It certainly is. Um, And, of course, this came out of, unfortunately, the same old story. Um, Mm -hmm. African-American residents in L.A. were excluded from high-paying jobs, affordable housing, and, you know, the political freedom given to white residents. Um, Of course, they also faced discrimination by the LAPD as well. The governor of California at the time commented uh, about the riots that law enforcement was confronting guerrillas fighting with gangsters. Wow. And that's gorillas, wow. guerrillas.
1: G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A-S. Yeah, but occurs. that is... Yeah. That's um, some a governor's violent that. language.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the, the a National Guardsmen sergeant at the time said, the streets of Watts resembled an all-out war zone in some far-off country... It bore no resemblance to the United States of America. Over the course of the six days of the riots, uh, between 31 and 35,000 adults participated. Around 7,000 additional people were, quote, sympathetic, but not active. And over the course of these six days, there were 34 deaths, 1,032 injuries, and 3,438 arrests. Only three police force slash National Guardsmen were killed in the riots. Um, And one was because one was struck when a wall from a fire weakened structure fell on him. And two of them and two of the deaths occurred from people who were shot while a police officer or National Guardsman uh, was in a struggle and their gun discharged. Uh, Twenty-three out of the thirty-four people killed in the riots were shot by LAPD officers or National Guardsmen. Um, but one of the uh, authorities uh, overseeing the this, you know, scuffle said that he saw the rioting people were acting like quote monkeys in a zoo. Whew. Um, and this also, so these riots were the biggest civil unrest that Los Angeles had seen and would see until 1992 when the Rodney King riots broke out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, spoke and mentioned the, the, mentioned these riots. There were a a variety of actions across the country, uh, to the news of, of these riots, uh. A lot of the public uh, polled that um, a couple years after the riots, uh, and it showed that a majority believe that the riots were linked to communist groups who were active in the area, protesting high unemployment rates and radical discrimination. Let's not forget that we're in the height of, like, the C word, communism being the most damning Mm -hmm. label that one could have.
1: McCarthy era.
0: So... Noah Purifoy was, um, you know, a Los Angeles resident and, you know, was around during these Watts riots. Um, his, uh, info on his website, you know, doesn't say, uh, anything about his participation if he did or not. Um, his bio on the Noah Purifoy Foundation website, uh, just says that, you know, using this debris was his first, um, foyer into uh, assemblage sculpture which he continued to work with for the rest of his life and for for the 20 years that uh followed the rebellion Noah Purefoy dedicated himself to the found object and to using art as a tool for social change uh towards the end of his life in the late 1980s he moved his practice out uh, of LA into a Joshua tree which is maybe like a three hour drive. And uh, that's where he, you know, grew his assemblage practice. And, you know, he really dedicated uh, himself and his time and his practice to making this outdoor art museum that included a lot of, you know, debris and found objects that are found in the desert. And Mm -hmm. it is really wild, the things (laughs) that uh, you wouldn't expect to be found in the desert in mass quantities in order for him to make an entire outdoor museum about it. Um, So uh, yeah, yeah, he passed away in 2004, uh, but the Noah Purifoy Foundation still keeps his, uh, keeps the outdoor art museum going It is open to the public, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's a sculpture park, you can drive up, go look at it um, at your leisure. They do uh, have the option for you to book a tour in advance, things like that. Uh, You can support the foundation, um, if you like. And the outdoor Arm museum isn't the only legacy that Noah Purifoy has left behind. He is in a lot of collections across the United States and has been exhibited in, uh, museums as well. So, um, although the outdoor museum, you know, does offer the kind of, uh, you know, big experience of being able to see multiple works, you know, in the desert environment from which he was working and collected these materials. Um, you know, his, his legacy does expand beyond and his practice, you know, was, was across the country and, you know, is still housed across the country as well.
1: Wow. So I I know that we're, you know, we're an arts podcast, um, but I'm really curious. Do you know what happened to the brothers and the mother who were arrested?
0: Uh, yeah, every I think they spent the night in jail and then were released in the morning. They were released. They were arrested that evening and released the next morning. And they, um, Rena, I believe, the mother-in-law actually went to that uh, town meeting in Watts to to say that she had been released and to you know show that she was okay and fairly unharmed
1: I'm assuming we can post some pictures of Noah Purify's work um but can you can you kind of describe the is there an overall central feeling that you get when you're looking at his pieces in person are they big are they small are they contemplative what what kind of sense do you get from them
0: from from what I can tell, his practice really grew. Um, just looking at an object that was a part of the exhibition "No Purify: Watts Uprising Remains," which was held at the Hammer Museum, um, there is a piece uh, of his assemblage art that was made from the Watts riots, and uh, you know it's only about twenty-four inches in its you know at its biggest dimension, and You know, you can see this one is more, you know, this is his first time kind of working in assemblage. Maybe he's, you know, approaching it in these kind of, you know, smaller ways because, you know, this is kind of his first time he's approaching it and, you know, like biting off what he can chew, experimenting with it the first time. Um, Obviously, these are so impactful because like this piece, it is charred and it's, you know, um, hard to even tell what, it's made of and you know it, it looks like burned refuse um so just the impact coming from such a you know a very striking event um you know is very impactful whereas i would say so i'd say that that you know probably makes you feel more contemplative and it really kind of impacts you in like a wow this was there this was this was on the street this was you know like these were things that you know rioters smashed and people ripped up from structures and you know trash left behind by looters and it's from all the way back in 1965 and this is so topical now um and then his his desert art seems a little more it's it's bigger in scale you know these are structures that you can interact with you can walk inside of a lot of them Um, it's kind of you know they're 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 large there's things that you can walk around there are things the size of like houses there are things that are you know like arranged like one's arranged, and like like it's an amphitheater or like it is kind of like the layout of a house or um and it's made of you know kind of all this weird human things that are dropped off like creepy old toys that just give you the creeps and that like weird old like Circusy way, you know, just finding, like, bleached old children's toys yeah, that are old okay. is just creepy. Um, and some of it is made. He has these kind of uh, things that look like figures, and he's clothed them in, you know, clothes that he's found in the desert that are, you know, from the 80s, 90s. And so they're, like, these old clothes, and they're just such – they're just so in tatters because the desert has had its way with all of these. You know, they just sit out in the desert, and – they are being preserved to a certain degree, but you can just, you know, see time. And I remember this one installation of, like, computers and keyboards that just get thrown away, you know. And it's also, like, an ecological comment. I mean, at least that's what I'm thinking. Sure. I'm like, people are tossing mm-hmm. their old computers just, like, in the desert. Like, and eh, this is far enough. We'll just put it here. And <laughs> so there's these, like, old school keyboards and uh, and computers. So it's also, like, a freeze in time. You know, like, I'm on my MacBook Air right now. And to see these, like, big, chunky computers that cost, like, at least twice the cost of a laptop today is, you know, mm-hmm. kind of surreal.
1: So it seems like, you know, it's, it's certainly responsive work that he's doing. But it's also not created, it doesn't seem, with the viewer in mind, it's not created for your comfort or to be... um you know, a form that is immediately recognizable. It's made up of things from everyday life that, that perhaps reference a narrative. So he's using the narrative of his materials.
0: Totally. Um, I would say perhaps, I mean, a lot of these pieces do imply the body. Right. You know, like one that's set up as if it's a theater and you're supposed to walk through it. There's a certain way you're supposed to walk through it Um, or the relationship from one to the other and how much space is between them. You know, there's walkways, pathways, things like that. Um, So I would say that, it, you know, a lot of these are set up in a way that it implies that there will be bodies moving through it and around it and between the setups. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, it, it doesn't seem like, uh, I don't know, like the viewer's supposed to find themselves in the work unless it's, you know, kind of a reflection on the things that we throw away and the, and the value that we give to things, you know, maybe that computer was so valuable when that person had it, but the minute it broke, you know, it didn't matter that you paid mm-hmm. for it in, you know, 1992, it's, you know, you just like toss it in the desert. So, I mean, uh, it's not, it's definitely, you know, despite those figures that I, I think it was more a point of like communicating desert refuse than like being like a, a figure study, if you will.
1: Well, I mean, I think that it's really telling that his practice shifted to, uh, to be sculptural and, out of found materials, you know, during and after the Watts riots. I mean, that is that is an artist's way that they can respond directly to um, an upheaval in society or their life. They don't have to state specifically that this is how they feel. They can let the materials do the talking for them.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it shows him growing as an artist, you know, it it shows that, you know, he found, like, he, he discovered assemblage, and that really spoke to him. And that's something that he continued with, you know, maybe the, the political and social action, you know, prompted him to work with assemblage in the first place. But, you know, it helped him to find this way of working and this, you know, found object media that he really resonated with and stayed with him for the rest of the life for his life.
1: Wow. I had no idea that these two things were connected. I'm I'm really glad that we decided to revisit this.
0: Yeah. And it's just, you know, somewhat unfortunately so timely because you know, it just shows that, um, you know, we we don't know about the Watts riots. You know, um, maybe if you live in Los Angeles, you're more familiar, but it, it kind of shows how these things are all too often forgotten and swept under the rug of history. And and the old quote, you know, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it, uh, mm-hmm. comes to mind. And, you know, I really hope that the movement that's happening now uh, actually has this, this traction that I know that they wanted and the results that, you know, we have needed in this country since its founding. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm really putting a lot of hope into this, uh, into this moment and that this, this is really the start of a lot of change.
1: Yeah, I am too. This is
0: just the tip of the
1: iceberg.
0: Um, in the case of talking about the Watts Rebellion and Noah Purifoy's work, obviously these are these are huge topics in and of themselves, and also put together. Um, and we just touched on them lightly, So, um, we'll have links in the show notes if you want to learn more. Oh, and if you want to learn more about the experience of going to the Noah Purefoy Outdoor Museum itself, uh, we'll also have a link back to the episode from two years ago.
1: Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I love it after doing this for officially two years today. (laughs) Um, that we are that we're vis- revisiting content that we created in a brand new way, and I I love it. I love it. I love it.
0: I love you.
1: I love you. Wow.
0: Oh my God. We love you, Sotons, and we are always thinking about you. And even if we you know can't be uh, can't be together because of uh, social distancing or a certain someone being half the country away, uh, you are still always on our minds and we are continually just trying to to do our best to support our community of the Twin Cities in Minnesota, Midwest.
1: Do you have something that you want to say to Jaysa or me or to the both of us? Do you have thoughts and opinions about what we've just said? Because I'm sure you do. If you do have thoughts, opinions, comments, concerns, questions about anything related to soda, or really, I suppose, life in general, please email us. We're at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Instagram, stateoftheartspod is our handle, and we would love to hear from you.
0: And don't forget, our music is by the Von Tramps.